Hi guys and welcome back to the Coffee and Heroes podcast. We are hitting our review show once again. We're playing catch up once again, but we're delighted to be in 2022 at least. So although we're recording this in March, we are catching up to the best of our, our ability. So as ever, the Coffee and Heroes broadcast is brought to you by myself, Alan, the owner of Coffee and Heroes uh, comic store in Belfast, Northern Ireland. And as always, I'm joined by Mr. Keith Miller. Good evening, sir. Hi, are you? How's things? 100% all good we're recording this on a Tuesday Tuesday's always a, a busy day for me but it's also a good day because it's where I get previews of all the big titles for the week just before a new comic book day so uh, it's one of the perks of owning a store I suppose looking good for tomorrow 100% yeah Diamond's deliveries are getting better and better well packaged uh, only one thing missing out of it all uh, so I really can't complain too much and uh, it just genuinely makes my life so much easier when you actually get this, you know, crazy notion of receiving what you paid for. So, uh, but yeah, ton, tons of good stuff out this week as well. So uh, I'll look forward to getting into that once I get caught up on last week's books. But I think we're in the same boat on that one. Yes, absolutely. I haven't even looked at last week's books yet. Uh, I am. I think I'm, I've got about maybe 15 books left from the previous week, uh, including some goodies. I've just uh, just cracked open X Deaths of Wolverine number four. And uh, I think next on the list is uh Aro smith behind enemy lines number two so a lot of good stuff um but i'm i'm hoping to part i am getting caught up uh as we are also getting caught up with our reviews yeah i think it's interesting just to let our listeners know of how we have completely different reading habits because so with keith he he has to read his entire week before he can move on to the next week which is a fully justifiable and a very reasonable way to do it. Me, on the other hand, if I know Keith's not reading something, I sort of put it to the back of the queue, and I don't mind a couple of them building up because I know we won't be talking about it or spoiling it, but I can't help myself if a new issue of Batman comes out or a new issue of Daredevil comes out or a new issue of Walking Dead comes out. I just have to jump straight into it. So I, I mine's a little bit more organized chaos than yours. I think yours is just organized. Yeah, indeed. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm all about the delayed gratification. You know, and and the systematic, uh, the systematic uh, organization of <laughs> making sure, and especially, I suppose, whenever you're a Marvel reader, you know, things tend to be a wee bit more connected. You know, or or if you're 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 reading something, I guess, you know, a DC crossover or whatever, you need to read certain things before other certain things. Mm-hmm. You know, and sometimes there's just wee there's just wee uh, mentions or whatever, and 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 books, and you go, oh, I missed that. You know, so if I wasn't reading it the week, you know, in the weeks that it's released, I might, you know, maybe not get the full value of, of some of those wee, wee things. But well, just each as, to their own. Just as a very quick side note, too, and for anybody listening as well. So uh, Chip Zdarsky put out a thing in his newsletter. So Daredevil Woman uh, Without Fear number three came out last week, but events in it happen after Devil's Reign number five, which is out this week. So the fact that you're a little bit behind and won't have read Daredevil Woman Without Fear five or three, sorry, is a good thing. Read Devil's Reign 5 this week first and then read Woman Without Fear. So Chip Chip uh, drew a very nice handy sort of arrows pointing all over the place sort of thing to uh, just, just to make it nice and simple for us uh, for us comic readers. So, <laughs> But the good news about being far behind on our reviews means that we have read everything that we're going to chat about uh, on this particular podcast. So as I stated, this is uh, the first podcast review show of 2022 titles. This is going to cover the 5th of January. Uh, as ever, we'll break down our titles first of all. So for me this week, it was 21 titles in total. Pretty even on DC and Marvel. I had 6 DC for Marvel, with once again indie proving the most for me with 11 indie titles. And then this week, I also had an omnibus. 
but that omnibus shall remain unnamed for now as it will be chatted about a little later on how about you what were your what were your numbers i'm just a squeak ahead of you with uh, 22 to your 21 uh i had four dc uh eight marvel and 10 nd and also had a hardcover omnibus uh, which is the same hardcover omnibus so i'll not mention what it is either it shall remain unnamed for now, but it is a good end worth sticking around for. So, as ever, we'll kick things off with our quick pick section. A little less detail in these, but also less spoilers in these as well. And then we'll move on to our picks of the week, which, of course, always contains uh, uh, major spoilers. You know, more story points discussed, that kind of thing. So, why don't you kick things off for us? I believe we've got a few indie titles between the two of us to, to start off with. Yeah, sure thing. The first of my quick picks is the Magic Order 2 number 3. Uh, so the second series of Mark Miller's The Magic Order and the third issue of that series. And I think we're at the halfway point of uh, of that second series of the modern day urban fantasy. And while the first series was fairly centrally focused around the Moonstone family and those relationships, this series has taken it out into the wider world while still keeping some of that focus on those relationships and the struggle of those central characters uh, as they uh, go up against an ancient evil in modern form. I think of all our books, uh, this one has me the most interested, even over and above the fantastic King of Spies. I know that's probably more of a favourite of yours, given your your uh, your love of the, uh, the genre. But um, this particular issue features uh, the Order trying to prevent a tragedy in uh, Mark Miller's hometown of Glasgow, trying to protect the public while dealing with the appearance of... Uh, Francis, who's a drug-addled member of their family. Um, Stuart Immerman is the penciler on this, and his pencils are absolutely lovely in this uh, installment, which is very uh, heavy on the magic action, and it jumps between the modern era and the oldie-worldy vibe, where the villain's ancestor has been attacked by a previous incarnation of the Order. And uh, I have to say, uh, Victor Korn makes a great villain too. Um, are you on this as well? I am indeed, Jen. It's interesting we're recording this now because I actually caught up on this over the weekend. I'd let issues three, four, and five build up, read them back to back, and I agree. I think this is among Miller's Miller's best work. I, I love this series. It's violent. It's well told. It's got great characters. I was slightly concerned when the first volume had Olivier Coupel on art, who I'm a big, big fan of, and I saw I wasn't coming back for this one, but mm-hmm. this was probably the issue that showed there was nothing to worry about at all. I mean, Stuart mm. stuff is gorgeous, uh, big and mm. epic. A lot of double-page spreads in places as well. And yeah, I mean, I mean, I do love King of Spies as well. And interestingly, the last issue of It's Out this week. So those two, for me, are the are the two best Miller World books, certainly, certainly at the moment. But yeah, I think Miller said he had three volumes already planned out for Magic Order. So that's good to know if it keeps of, uh, of this quality. Yeah, exactly. So what's up for yourself, your first quick pick? Yeah, so we move from Magic Order 2 and we move to Marjorie Finnegan, Temporal Criminal Number 8. So my monthly check-in with what I like to call the most gratuitous, stupid, hilarious, but fun comic on the rack. So uh, I'm sure you've heard me chat about it before, but it's Garth Ennis writing, Goran Suzuka on art, and issue 8 is its final issue. It has now hit trade. Uh, it's actually slightly changed for AWA trades. There are two individual volumes at four pound each, or sorry, four issues each that are nine pounds. But there is actually a collection of all eight, which is a little bit more expensive. But I cannot recommend it enough. Uh, you know, I, I've I've heard a comparison put out there that the main character Marjorie herself is akin to sort of a cross between Harley Quinn and Billy Butcher from the Boys, and I think that's pretty spot on. You know, she. 
She has that sort of carefree, chaotic attitude of Harley, but it's very much crossed with a potty mouth and pinch on for put downs that invite the comparison to Butcher as well. So I've said it before, I'll say it again. I can't emphasize enough this series is not going to reinvent the wheel by any stretch of the imagination. Although Marjorie herself could go back in time and do just that if it took her fancy. <laughs> but it's brilliantly told. Very adult orientated and just a big laugh out loud comic. So I, I just always think it's worth a mention. And, and again, I like to keep you guys up to date if something's hitting trade as well. So that was the last issue of Marjorie Finnegan. And, and I know it was just maybe a little too puerile for you in the beginning. Was that is that fair? Yeah, that is fair. I think I jumped off after issue, what, three? Yeah. Uh, so I'm glad you're still enjoying it, though. Yeah, I think it's, again, just fun, but... I can't emphasize this enough, guys. Not for kids. Uh, you know, this isn't Gar- Garth Ennis's Earth. This is Garth Ennis's The Boys or Preacher. Just not for kids. Um, but we move from one quite adult title to very much another adult title. Yeah, exactly. As you say, Nita Hawes' Nightmare Blog uh, is not for kids either. Um, number three of this uh, series. And if you like Philadelphia and how could you not, uh, this series is a must read. And if you're a horror fan and you haven't read Philadelphia. Uh, you can still get on on Nita Hawes' Nightmare blog without having having read the the, I guess the original series. There are some points, you know, if you were doing that, that might not carry quite the same weight as they do for Philadelphia readers. But uh, that would be the only issue you'd run into. Um, the pace of number three is a bit slower, even for a title which tends to be considerably slower than, as I say, Rodney Burns' Philadelphia. But they're a lot of details here that are worth paying attention to and uh, the book is not really one to be read quickly it's meant to be i think savored and absorbed uh, particularly with uh, welby's gruesome vicious but very precise art um from the point of view of someone who works in the music industry this current art is also a bit of a hard-hitting history lesson uh, as to how you know musicians of color were treated um, given that the you know the, the the basis of a lot of the genres of music we listen to now, uh, you know, come from those particular communities and and uh, and so forth. But interestingly, this issue also marks the first time we have a character crossover directly from Philadelphia and one that could potentially have a huge impact on Nita, uh, whether that character is here for long or not. Uh, did you enjoy issue three? Yeah, I'm still on this. I like to sort of think of it as Philadelphia is the vampire book, Nightmare Blog is the demon book. But <laughs> yeah, it's always it's always infused. What's great is I think of Rodney Barnes as writer. It's always infused with social commentary along with the scares, and it's always a story worth telling as well. I mean, this was the issue, wasn't it, where they're talking about how the musicians were badly treated and they didn't get credit, and uh-huh. you know, you know, sort of quote smarter men made their money off of the talent of others and and th- <laughs> whiter men. Well, yeah, exploitative men, shall we say. Yes, they, knew, they knew how to exploit talent and market talent, but not reward the talent, if that makes sense. So, uh-huh. But yeah, just the, the creature design and so forth, and this I think is awesome. I, I just think it's a really, really good book. And a, as you said, it is a great companion to Philadelphia, but I do think it stands alone. Um, but yeah, you maybe get a wee bit more out of it if you're a Philadelphia reader as well. But as you said, how could you not be in Philadelphia? Because it is <laughs> equally as great. So, yeah, I mean, if this is if this is the sort of thing you like, then Philadelphia is right up your street. Yeah, big time. So, so a few indie books there in the honourable mentions. We'll jump into a couple from the big two next. And the next one I wanted to mention was Detective Comics ten forty seven. So. Detective Comics for me has been great ever since Mariko Tamaki took over, you know, been writing really solid stuff ever since Infant Frontier. 
The artist on this issue is Ivan Rice, who sticks around for a couple of issues, which was great to see. And this was sort of a big bat event that kicks off. And this is the first issue in what was a weekly release schedule for, for the following 12 weeks. And with this one, it's it, it's Gotham as it starts to look at what a city without Batman looks like. And this, for me, this is what Detective Comics should be utilized for. It should be telling stories using the massive cast of heroes loyal to Batman's cause. And, of course, the endless rogues gallery, but without always having to call in the big guy himself. So, storyline-wise, it, it kicks off with a new state-of-the-art Arkham Tower, which has been constructed in Gotham. And Dr. Chase Meridian, I love that Batman Forever reference, uh, and the mysterious Dr. Weir are in charge, with Weir claiming to have a mysterious cure for mental illness that's turned both the violent Nero X1X and the serial killer Anna Vulsion into well-adjusted citizens. You know, it seems too good to be true, so... Of course, uh, the Bat family set off to investigate Batwoman especially. It's almost like they're suspicious of anything that would make Batman be- uh, Gotham better and mean they don't need to be called upon. But that's another conversation. <laughs> but yeah, sure enough, things go south very quickly. And I thought this was a superb intro issue for this weekly storyline. I think the writing is tight. The artwork from Ivan Rice is fantastic. And, and it's great to see, as I said before, his name attached to upcoming issues is... There's always a worry with weekly events that, you know, if it's going to be rotating artists, it's going to kill the flow of the story. Uh, but again, having Ivan Rice for the first few, at the very least, keeps that consistency. I think mention also is is merited for the backup story from Matthew Rosenberg and Fernando Ooh. Blanco as well. I mean, we follow a story of a child who watches the Joker brutally murder his parents and he's thrust into the uncaring world of Gotham social services and... He blames the Joker, of course, for killing them, but he also blames Batman for not saving them. And you have to wonder, is this going to be some sort of origin story for someone within the, the main story? So uh, time will tell there. But yeah, I think this is I think Detective Comics is, is not getting the attention it deserves at the moment. And this was uh, this was another great issue. Yeah, I think this this could be the story that that sort of punches it in there. I, mean, I have to say I've been enjoying Detective more than I've been enjoying Batman recently. Um, you know, the the. the the Batman Incorporated storyline is all right, uh, but this is this is where it's at for me. Um, so I'm 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 very much enjoying it. Let's not forget the mysterious Doctor Ocean upstairs, who no one's ever met yet. And of course, this has nothing to do with Nightwing being quite a key factor in this storyline at all. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I've, I've I've sort of always enjoyed Detective Comics when it was the Bat Family book. Yeah, which is what um, it should be. And, it's what it yeah, should be. And this is this is this is it, you know. And uh, just a counterpoint to your things that uh, make Gotham better that the Bat family don't trust. I think the reason they get into this is because there's a new drug in the street that's connected possibly to the tower, isn't that it? Yeah. That's what it, it's not that they just suddenly got cynical and went, this will never work. I just think they're cynical <laughs> in general. As I say, I think that's a, a separate point. It's like, what happens if we're not needed anymore? We become obsolete, you know? But again, discussion for another time. So, yeah, uh, yeah. But yeah, I'm really enjoying this event. And uh, again, it's a weekly release schedule, so there's good momentum to it, although it is hard on the wallet. Um, so Detective 1047 was kicking off a big event, and we have the last issue of another big event, but that certainly is, in the mighty world of Marvel instead. That is right, as we, uh, as we pitch into Inferno number four, uh, and we come to the end of Jonathan Hickman's era on the X-Men. And like it or not, uh, one of the most cerebral writers in the industry has changed the entire status quo of the X line in a fairly major way. And I don't see how there's any easy way of going back. And in a medium where, in the big two at least, character inevitably, characters inevitably shift back towards that initial status quo again, that changing is a very rare thing. Um, it doesn't happen very often within 
within Marvel and, and DC. And I mean, the crux of the story, you've got Magneto and Professor X uh, facing off against Nimrod and Karima, the uh, Omega Sentinel, uh, who reveal their true plans for both mutants and humans. And meanwhile, Mystique and Destiny attempt to exact their revenge on Moira McTaggart uh, until an unexpected party shows up and throws Destiny's vision of the future into flux. There are a bunch of plot threads that stretch back to House of X and Pars of X that are resolved here, including the many lives that uh, Moira has enjoyed as a result of her mutant ability and the ever-present threat of the Sentinels. And it's that it's that story that sort of really had my really had my attention because it. There, the, there's potentially some really cool setup in there. You know, for years, mutants thought humans were the most dangerous thing that they had to face, but it turns out that that machines will evolve, will evolve and fight for their survival as well. And the Omega Sentinel, Karima, who was actually uh, an X-Man at one stage, points out to Magneto that both humans and mutants have tried to suppress machines' evolution, and it's only natural that they fight back. It's you know, so whether or not there's something to come here, as was predicted in, in Powers of X, you know, this future where humans and mutants fight side by side against their machine overlords. I mean, that, that could be kind of interesting as well. Um, it is a fitting inclusion, though it's not necessarily an endpoint or a place of closure, as, as Hickman hasn't got to really finish his story, but the story will continue. It comes full circle with a page that replicates the very first page of House of X, only instead of... Uh, Instead of Professor X, we've got uh, Emma Frost in there. Um, you'd be disappointed if you were looking at the start of this for par parallels between this new series and the, the original X story of the same name. But Inferno very much, I think, sticks the landing in a big way. It looks great doing it. It delivers top tier relationship drama between characters and it set the, sets the stage for, for future books. So... As an ex-fan, as a Hickman fan, um, as a fan of the, the first stage of Krakoa, uh, I am satisfied. Yeah, this will very much go into my hardcover reading list. Uh, Inferno is, as you well know, I tend to read the X-Books more through hardcovers on omnibuses and so forth. And there's a rather nice hardcover on the way, which will have all four issues. And I think a lot of backup uh, material as well. So Great. And this sort of, I guess the story sort of extends particularly into X-Deaths of Wolverine. Yeah, I mean, that's something I haven't started. I actually have been collecting it simply because, obviously, Vicky's a big Wolverine fan, and I've been collecting it in variants, so I, I haven't tucked into it just yet. I get the feeling it's going to be a little like House on Pars, where, because it was a weekly title, it'd be good to just sort of sit down and, and burn through that. So uh, I've got the first six issues, I think. It's three ex three lives, three deaths so far. Mm, cool. Um, so I've got those sitting there. So it's it's one where I'm actually breaking away from my trade reading just uh, so hopefully. I'm, I don't think Inferno's far away, though, so... I'll get on to that. So away from Marvel and back into the wonderful world of indie. And the next one for an honorable mention is the Noctera special blacktop bill. This was a, I always find it interesting that they call one shots number ones, but again, a whole mm. other conversation to be had mm. there. But this is written by series creators, Scott Snyder and Tony S. Daniel. Uh, and the artist on this one is actually Dennis Cowan. So, you know, in preparation for the return of Noctera, you know, after a blistering first arc, you know, we talked about it many times. It was action-packed. It was horror-based. It was brilliantly drawn. It was great world-building. So after that blistering first arc, which, of course, is available in trade now, we have this special one-shot dedicated solely to the big bad of the series, Blacktop Bill. As I say, Tony S. Daniel, he sits out art this time, but takes up the co-writing duties. And an industry legend, Dennis Cowan, takes on the art and... 
this is a one shot that does not disappoint and adds to the legend that is Bill. So I've said it before in this podcast. I've said it in the store of you know I always think Snyder's writing is most at home in the world of horror. I always thought his Batman run was best when it dealt with horror and the darkness in Gotham. You know, sometimes his Justice League run wasn't quite there for me, but when he, he leaned into the horror side of it, I always thought that was better. And and that's always really ironic to me because he comes across as one of the nicest guys in the industry, but he clearly has a penchant for creating twisted, demented bad guys. And Blacktop Bill definitely doesn't disappoint. I mean, this is a bad man, even before the world descends into darkness. And they very quickly establish that Bill is a sociopath able to convey that outwardly nice and even kind demeanor. But, you know, is able to then indulge in those dark and violent actions when no one's around. Dennis Cowan steps in as artist for the one shot. You know, his art is perfect. As he almost has sort of a, a scratchy art style, you know, which really captures the roughness of Bill. And the grit and harshness of a world that is very much on the brink of collapse. You know, if it wasn't clear before, it is now abundantly clear by the end of this issue. Bill is the apex predator of the Nocteraverse. And even though we've seen some horrible glimpses in the story so far, the worst mate just yet have to uh the worst may just be yet to come so yeah thought this was a really really so i mean image seemed to be doing this a little bit at the moment a lot of one shots um and you know with varying degrees of success i thought this was pretty essential to the to the world of nocturne um yeah it, it disappointed me a wee bit mm-hmm. um i mean what what we saw was good and absolutely great to see dennis cohen's art um as you say quite that sort of sort of what did you say? Scratchy style. Yeah, it's quite a scratchy uh, style. Yeah. yeah. So it just it it sort of didn't go far enough, you know, with regard to uh, finding out, you know, uh, we we find out who Bill used to be, but we don't find out how he became who he is now. Mm-hmm. If you know what I mean. Uh, and that's that's that that's the mystery of Bill to me, is how he, how this this hitman became Blacktop Bill. Well, maybe that's interesting, just as I criticise the idea of a one-shot being number one. that Maybe that's Noctera special block, top bill number two in the post. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, but 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 what, what was there was uh, was was pretty good. Um, you know, the origins. Yeah, good, or, good, good, enjoyable. Cool, cool. So, yeah, we move away from the darkness of Noctera and into the light, I suppose, with Thor number 20. This is this is good. This is good stuff. Yeah, well, perhaps into the lightning, mm. and into the light. Nice. <laughs> yeah, this was this was really good. Part two of uh, five part God of Hammers arc, and it's shaping up to be as compelling as Donny Kate's other arcs on, on Thor. It's hard to believe actually it's only been twenty issues with all the awesomeness that's been packed into the series since the relaunch. But that said, at this stage, you know, he's wound readers' expectations up so tight and so high that uh, you wonder how sustainable it all is. Uh, you know, moving forward. Um, there's a reveal here. We eventually find out about the origin of Mjolnir and uh, what's going on and, and, and where it's got to and, and by the end of the issue. But it didn't quite have the same resonance for me as the Donald Blake stuff did, you know, and the, the reveal about Donald Blake, but it's still great stuff and I'm looking forward to seeing where it goes. The, uh, the broken sort of father-son relationship between Thor and Odin is still enjoyable. Uh, the pressure that Thor's feeling, you know, and the discomfort of the crown, the weight of the crown that he has to wear, uh, not obviously literally, but, you know, <laughs> you know, metaphorically. Uh, and the fact that Donnie seems to be positioning Loki as the one who has his head screwed on, 
<laughs> you know, relative to Thorin Odin is all really interesting. And Nick Klein's artwork is absolutely impeccable. Um, the most impactful, I think, part of the issue being the two-part spread of Thor carrying the body of Etri, who is the, the dwarven blacksmith that was played by Peter Dinklage in the Endgame movie uh, across this this field of graves. You know, Mjolnir having, uh, having totally uh, destroyed uh, the, the, the dwarven realm. Uh, what do you call it? Nid, 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 Nidvelia or whatever you call it. Nidvelia or something like that. Ah, uh, something along those lines. That, I mean, I remember this very podcast where you ran off the Ten Realms all, all on your own. <laughs> this, this should be second nature to you. <laughs> Nidavalier. I just can't, I can't get the pronunciation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just uh, on, on Thor 20, yeah, I, I'm loving this arc so far. It's, yeah. it's one of those ones that Donny Cates' work sometimes is hard to break down a little bit because he's he always likes to introduce something new to the mythology and introduce new characters and this and that, but that has that double-edged nature of then speculators jumping on it and it, it can be a little hard for people to get it. And that's what it was with this issue was sort of the reveal of who the God of Hammers was. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, storytelling-wise, I, I've, I've said it before, when Nick Klein's on the art for the, the Thor arcs, it just soars. It's it's detailed. It's sort of rock and roll, heavy metal type style. And yeah, I mean, I, I still haven't fully caught up on all the Jason Aaron stuff, which of course I know you 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 swear by. But I mean, how do you how do you see this in comparison to the Jason Aaron stuff? It's is it still a little too early to have it in that um, company or? It, it, I mean, it holds up. It absolutely holds up. It feels a wee bit more, you know, compressed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, uh, you know. Jason Aaron's story unfolded over a lot of issues, a lot of issues, mm-hmm. and it almost feels like with that, you know, that frenetic energy of his that 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 Donny Cates is trying to do almost as much in a much smaller space, mm-hmm. uh, which means that there's maybe less time for it to breathe uh, a wee bit. But uh, but yeah, no, I mean, it, it definitely it's it's top quality Thor stuff. It really is. I mean, you're not you're not he's not. He's gonna. He's still got a lot, a long way to go before he reaches the heady heights of of what Jason Aaron did. Yeah, you know, but uh, he's definitely, uh, definitely on the right track. Different, a different way of doing things. Different yeah. way of doing things. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. But yeah, Thor twenty, as Keith says, part two of the five part God of Hammers arc, and ironically, as we record, the finale of that is out this very week. So yeah. that is Thor twenty. We move back to the the world of DC for my next one, and it is Dark Knights of Steel number three. And you thought we could get a through a podcast without mentioning Tom Taylor. Don't be silly. So, <laughs> written by Tom Taylor, art by Yasmin Putri. This will always be amongst my favorite books any release week, you know, just for the simple fact it's so chaotic and unpredictable. You know, it's it's where Tom Taylor thrives, you know, being removed from canon and also from the normal morality and ethics that accompany any good superhero tale. You just have no idea what to expect next, whether it be story threads or even the survival of certain characters, you know. Taylor excels at this, you know, in this world, no one is safe. So with Dark Knights of Steel, it's essentially a war book, you know, with two rival sides, each unwavering in their beliefs. Both sides have tacticians and fighters. Both sides have a belief in their right to rule the lands and what best to do for moving forward. And that that is why no one is safe, because war is unpredictable. And as I said, unpredictability and ruthless elimination of characters, what Tom Taylor does best. So, issue two was a bloodbath issue, of course, you know, due in no small part to this tale's version of Supergirl, you know, Zala, Jor-El, it's, it's no surprise her actions are the focus of, of this issue, as a bulk of the issue is set in Themyscira, 
where talks are ongoing to check on allegiances and, and plans moving forward. You know, this, this issue takes an unexpected turn out of these parlays with a really, really dramatic action segment and yet another shocking death that throws the entire concept of the series for a loop. But uh, it also ends this issue with the promise that the narrative will be turning to the spoilers, half Kryptonian Bruce Wayne. So it's a safe assumption that issue four, of course, will be at the very top of my read pile again as well. So, you know, if you have missed out on this so far, I should say that there is an oversized issue that came out last week that it's actually puts the first three issues together into one so you can play catch up and then issue four and five have come out come out since but yeah this series it just continues to be a heck of a lot of fun and again it's it's just the unpredictability of the story i just i just love you know you just no one is safe yeah i do i mean i like i like that sort of the what if uh but in a in a fantastical setting um that, that tracks and tom taylor's a a great writer and alfred's role in this is interesting as well yeah Oh, it's just great to see Alfred in a, in a DC book. Mm-hmm. Not that I'm bitter. But uh, yeah, so Dark Knights is day number three. And then one last honourable mention then to finish off for this week. Yeah, from one fun series to another, uh, we've got Captain America and Iron Man number two. And as I say, this series is just great fun with brilliant action and some fun exchanges between Tony and Steve, you know, the, the old uh, friends, compadres and uh, sparring partners that they are. It's the sort of solid light-hearted writing that I've come to expect from Derek Landy whenever he's doing this kind of book. Uh, that and his sort of familiarity with the, with the characters and their, you know, their their dialogue. There's callbacks to the 50-state initiative that uh, the Avengers Academy that followed on from the original Civil War and, uh, you know, the long-term impacts of, of, of what that's done. Um, the villain is a little hard to take seriously as a threat. Uh, Veronica, uh, and maybe we're not supposed to, uh, but she sometimes drops to punchline levels of gratingly annoying uh, but still manages to be much more interesting than that character um just good fun good looking with it uh thanks to angel Unzueta's art that was a, that you you went in two footed on punchline there i mean first of all you said levels of gratingly annoying but then said but still manages to be more interesting than that characters i mean that's two footed right there <laughs> what i mean is veronica still is more interesting than punchline. punchline that's what i'm saying you went yeah, in yeah. two-footed on punchline oh yeah absolutely why not why oh not? remember when that character was the toast of the comics world <laughs> how short-lived that was but uh yeah i'm reading this as well yeah it's just good fun and again it was great the that it continued on a lot of story threads from falcon winter soldier as well i think mm-hmm. these team-up books are good fun uh and you know it's it's about the only way you're going to get me to read an iron man book so you know. <laughs> and it's it's not even the best Iron Man book, so you're sort of screwing yourself there. Well, I knew you were gonna throw that up at some point, but mm-hmm. we'll leave the uh, honourable mentions there at uh, Captain America and Iron Man number two. So, on to our picks of the week then for fifth of January. So we're going back in time quite a bit here to talk in quite a lot of detail. So, well, do you want uh, do you want to switch these out, Alan? Uh, I'll go first with mine, and then we can we can both talk about yours to finish off. You go for it. No problem all right. at all. Well, we're going to kick all things right. off then with Keith as opposed to myself because, yeah, the, my pick of the week this week is a bit of an unusual one, but we'll we'll get into the reasoning why. But why don't you kick things off with your pick of the week then, 5th of January? Sure. And for my pick of the week for 5th of January, it's uh, X-Men number six. And that's in a week when the final issue of the Glorious Inferno miniseries came to an end. And the main X book by Jerry Duggan is my pick of the week. And probably the best issue so far, I think, since uh, since the relaunch of this book six issues ago. And I think that's possibly because while the previous 
Case issues have been largely standalone issues, standalone stories, uh, introducing us to the new team dynamic uh, with a linked B story. This issue pulled the B story to the far forefront and started tying things together in a more arc-like uh, fashion. Uh, it's the first open conflict between uh, the mutants and the Mars-obsessed uh, sort of uh, technocrat Fei Long over rights to the Red Planet, which the mutants recently terraformed and colonized in the phenomenal planet-sized X-Men last year. And maybe Jerry Duggan had to wait for things to fully flip towards the second edge of Krakoa, uh, you know, get uh, get Hickman out the door uh, before putting his foot down. But he seems to have done so this issue with artist Pepe Larraz after a two-issue break and colorist uh, Marty Garcia very much along for the ride and continuing to dazzle visually, uh, making Krakoa look like a lush, inviting place to live and the Martian men of Phobos look barren and hostile. Captain Krakoa is New York's newest hero and the newest member of the X-Men, but not everybody is happy about that, uh, especially not Cyclops, and not for the reasons that we might think. Um, on the other side of things, we've got Sunfire standing ready to defend Arako as, uh, as I say, Orcus's space explorer, Fei Long, arrives in the orbit of the Red Planet. The issue... The issue is one that I think subverts expectations. First of all, by giving us just a brief introduction to Captain Krakoa at the start, then focusing on the plot of Sunfire and Fei Long, we sort of have this mystery of Captain Krakoa uh, lingering in our minds uh, while the action scene goes on. But, you know, it's nice to get focused on some of the characters that maybe haven't had that focus and, and sort of where it was maybe needed and uh, there's there's quite a lot of plot prog progression as well on the issue um, and there's a lot of parts of the issue that are strongly tied with the rest of the X line and that creates that sense of continuity that 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 I love and I think with Jerry Jerry Duggan in charge of the line now we're we're really going to see that but then we reach the twist Captain Krakoa is actually Cyclops more specifically he's Scott Summers disguised in a way you know that the Orcus, the Orcus Collective, the, the, the I guess the Humanus people have been investigating and leaking the idea of, of resurrection. You know the, the the mutant resurrection, which is still a big secret. And earlier on, a few issues back, you know, well, back at the very start, I think of, of, of House of X, uh, Scott died on uh, in, a, in a very public way, and. Um, uh, and then, well, sorry, he died first of all, then he died in a very public way. So, you know, for Scott to come back as Cyclops again would sort of... Questions <laughs> would be asked. Yeah, exactly. Questions would be asked. So, uh, so yeah, so uh, so they're trying to bury Orcus's plot to unmask the Krakoan resurrection uh, while turning things in their head a bit. And, you know, the last the last few pages, we have Pepe Larraz's depiction of Cyclops and this whole, you know pretend to be Captain Krakoa is clearly, you know, breaking Scott's spirit as he puts on the charade. It's not his choice. It's the choice of the Quiet Council and Charles. And uh, it just is not, it's not, it's not going well for him. You know, the overall though, the stakes seem to be rising for, for Cyclops' X-Men as, uh, you know, the X-Line, the whole X-Line pivots into the, the destiny of X-Era, the second edge of Krakoa. And uh, it seems like all the creators involved are, are rising to the occasion, not least, uh, Mr. Jerry Duggan. Yeah, it's nice to hear that he's putting his own stamp on the book. It must have been somewhat, you know, a fearful, uh, a fearful assignment, almost taken over from the head of X himself on the main book. But 
you know, the the feedback I certainly get in store. I mean, more people are on X-Men now that were on X-Men when Hickman was doing it. I don't know if that's mm-hmm. just, you know, the number one came along. People saw a jumping on point, whatever. But mm-hmm. everyone who's on it has stuck with it. So that's a testament, obviously, to the, the creative team in place there. So, yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's interesting because the way the way Dugan is writing Cyclops here is kind of reminiscent of whenever Rosenberg was writing the X-Men, you know, whenever Cyclops was one of the last mutants left alive and everybody else was dead and it was a whole thing, you know, it was uh, quite a dark, dark period. So he's a, he's a very complex character, the bits and pieces he's gone through. And, and I think Jerry Duggan is drawn and all of that stuff. Uh, I'm a huge Cyclops fan, so always nice to see him spotlighted. And now he has another alter ego, Captain Krakoa. <laughs> Just to add to the pile. So, so yeah, so that is Keith's Pick of the Week for this week, which was X-Men number six. And it is a Marvel double this week as I go with my Pick of the Week. And as I say, this is a bit of an unusual Pick of the Week. You know, it's not a single issue. It is, in fact, the Ultimate Spider-Man Volume 1 Omnibus. Uh, this is written by Bram Michael Bendis and art brilliantly the whole way through is by Mark Bagley. So... As I say, it's it's not often, if at all, that an omnibus would ever be pick of the week for us, mainly because our pull lists are so big each week. You know, we're we're very unlikely to be able to get through an entire omnibus as well. But but I was actually away for the weekend after this hit uh, over to England to visit Vicky's folks, and rather than shove a load of single issues in my bag to keep me entertained, I thought I'd just bring this. You know, it's it's a massive gap in my reading. It's an acclaimed run. It's a series I've never, you know, even read a single issue of before, and you know I've heard nothing but good things. So, take the dust jacket off, leave the dust jacket at home, throw it in the bag. Easy choice to make. So, volume one of Ultimate Spider-Man. You know, the omnibus covers issues one to thirty-seven, as well as a, a half issue. And to give you a little bit of history on this, I mean, the Ultimate Universe was an initiative by Marvel Comics to bring all of their superheroes up to date. You know, after all, these characters were created in the sixties. And the world had moved on quite substantially in that time since. So instead of Peter Parker being a geeky kid in a woolly jumper and glasses, he was updated in the Ultimate Universe to being a you know a brainy kid, small circle of friends, but he actually has a little bit of cool to him as well. You know, all the hairstyles and fashions of the characters are brought up to date, as well as, you know, the title being brought up to date technology wise, but you know, ironically, we've now moved forward another 20 years, so some of the technology and fashion seems a little quaint. But yeah, there was titles such as The Ultimates, Ultimate Fantastic Four, and Ultimate X-Men, amongst others. But The Jewel in the Crown has always been this Spider-Man run from a team operating at the very peak of their powers. You know, Bendis writing and, and Bagley on art. So with Ultimate Spider-Man, this has been a long requested omnibus in store. You know, so many of the trip paperbacks are out of print. And they now command extortion of prices on the secondary market. The original omnibus collections are also hard to pin down at any kind of reasonable price. So, along with all new Wolverine, you know, and and I have to say, actually, before I jump onto that point, a little while back, Keith did a uh, starting point Spider-Man podcast, which was brilliantly researched, tons of great notes. But in that, he was like, "Read Ultimate Spider-Man." All I could think was, "Damn you, Keith! This is so hard to find." <laughs> <laughs> but no more but no more but uh but yeah along with all new wolverine which is also now thankfully available we were asked all the time if a new print of this was on the way so from that point of view it was also great to see it released so to ultimate spider-man you know they, they kept the basics the same but they reimagined the whole universe you know so uncle ben is a hippie in this world but he's still there as a father figure for peter in the beginning and and i'd wager he actually sticks around a lot longer in this version of spider-man than in the original run as well MJ is still the girl next door and the will they won't they threads run throughout the whole title and they contribute a lot of charm. 
Gwen is introduced as a troublemaker at school, and she's probably one of the more radical redesigns, I would say, as well. And, of course, Peter himself has all the quips and attitude we've associated with the characters for years. So, Volume 1 collects some of, you know, younger Peter's more interesting conflicts. You know, from the start, the very first arc establishes, you know, fan-favorite Norman Osborn as possibly Spider-Man's most dangerous foe. And this is a series that just grabs your attention from the start and never lets go. Some of the showdowns between Spidey and Goblin are outstanding. They're fast-paced, they're pretty violent, and they matter in the overall context of the story as well. The rogues gallery are all updated, and the ones who make an appearance here include Electro, Doc Ock, Kingpin, Craven the Hunter, who's really interestingly reimagined. Um, and then the final arc in this volume is a fitting climax for the series with a uh, focus on Venom, who of course is one of the most popular villains and, well, villain hero in Spidey history. And, and he gets his ultimate universe origin at the end of this volume and it gives us a wonderful insight into the emotions of our hero and, and those he loves. I've said before as well, the continuity of creators here only adds to the overall quality of the book. You know, Bendis is on every issue and even more importantly, so is Bagley. You know, we I spoke about it a little bit before with the weekly event for Detective Comics. When you have long runs, you always have the worry of filling artists disrupting the flow of a story or how it looks. So to have Bagley's amazing art the whole way through is a massive bonus. It's a seriously beautiful looking book the whole way through. You know, this this is my first read through of Ultimate Spider-Man. I'm really glad it lives up to the hype and, and the legacy that it's earned. But there's just one problem I have to wait for the next volume. And it's months away. <laughs> months that's not too far away it's not too far it's away. too far Keith. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i i read a lot of this sort of the first time round, uh and i've picked up not, not all of it I didn't i, I didn't complete the, the series I, I, I dipped in and out of it but it was always you know it was funny because as a spider-man fan initially whenever this was announced there was a wee bit of like oh it's not spider-man that's <laughs> this is spider-man that's i don't know what that is that's you know but you know the idea of it. The idea that, uh, as you rightly said, you know it was a it was a jumping on point. Uh, you know the, the the history of Spider-Man becomes so dense that no longer related to you know to to kids of the age that that, that Peter Parker was at the start of his career. Uh, now you know so so this was a, an inspired an inspired idea you know and it was just just good all the way through. Um, the you know the tone the tone is is much more grounded and less for color though. You know, saying that the the colors really, you know, the digital coloring really really pops um, throughout it. You know, the dialogue is a wee bit more realistic. Characters are more understandable, more relatable, less, uh, you know, high drama, melodrama. Um, and uh, you know, it it takes the the thing that that made Marvel comics different from DC comics at the time was that you know the books were as much about the you know the the life of the characters, you know, the drama and Peter's life as they were about his life as spider-man and that that human side is what differentiated the you know the, the, the comic companies at the start and actually you know you mentioned you mentioned uncle ben and you know obviously in the in the original uncle ben died in the first issue you know it was uh, before the end you know whereas this the build up to uncle's uncle ben's death is slow and you you get to know him and like him which of course means that the death is, is that much more painful you know it's uh it's really good i mean whether you're whether you're an older comic reader who's, you know, been through, you know, hundreds of issues of Spider-Man, or you're just starting out in comics, I mean, as as I did in the uh, in the, the Starting Points podcast, I would definitely recommend this. And the, the, I mean, the only thing maybe that's worth mentioning is that 
at points the story gets quite dark and quite violent quite complex mm-hmm. uh, and so i don't know if i would recommend this for sort of kids under maybe 12 if unless they're you know they're mature they're they're a wee bit more mature for their age uh, yeah, would you would you agree that's with that? Fair. I mean, I would I would put the tone somewhere on line with maybe Sam Raimi's version of Spider Man. You know, there's a lot of darkness in it with the with the Green Goblin. There's, you know, obviously Sam Raimi came from horror roots, so he sort of pushed the envelope quite a bit with what he could get out of a twelve rating. But yeah, it's certainly not a, a Spider Man the hand to like your your eight year old or your seven year old that mm, kind of thing. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. There, there's there's far more appropriate stories than that, but. But yeah, I suppose that was sort of maybe one of the parts that they were trying to, one of the things they were trying to achieve here was maybe bringing in older readers. You know, Marvel, for better or worse, I think Marvel has maybe always had a reputation for being better for younger readers and DC was darker and, you know, had the prestige format of things like Dark Knight Returns and Arkham Asylum and so forth. So maybe this was sort of showing like, here's something for a slightly older crowd. It's not quite Marvel Knights, which is obviously darker again or the Marvel mm-hmm. Max format, I suppose. But there is definitely more long-form storytelling in mind here. You know, this is very much not like, here's a four-issue arc, here's a four-issue arc. This is one big soap opera almost, and it's told from in a more adult way. So, But yeah, no, I, I loved it. I mean, it was it was two sittings. I read it in. I read the first 11 issues in one sitting, and then poor Vicky was driving us to the airport. It was a three-hour drive, and there was me sitting in the passenger side just <laughs> reading Spider-Man the whole time. So yeah, I loved it. I uh, really, really did. I mean... I'm curious just to, to get your point of view on the other Ultimates titles. Whether Was there anything that stood out or is it a case of uh, this is the crown jewel and that's it? Or No, I mean, the Ultimates the Ultimates stood out, which was the Ultimate Universe version of the Avengers and was very formative on, on the Avengers movie mm-hmm. uh, whenever it came out, actually. Um, so, no, it was it was really enjoyable, um, which was Mark Miller on that, yeah. I think. Uh, and the Ultimate Fantastic Four was really interesting, too. Uh, and in fact, you know, it was the first, uh, you know, it, it sort of crossed over with the mainline, the 616 universe, I think, before anything else did. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously Miles Morales, uh, you know, and, and this Ultimate Spider-Man spawned Miles Morales Ultimate Spider-Man, who is now Miles Morales Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, one of the one of the key characters in the Marvel Universe whenever they crossed over. So, so yeah, I I mean, I, I thought they were all great. The, there was the Ultimate Galactus trilogy and... Ultimate there was, X-Men, was, I think. And... Yeah, there was Ultimate X-Men. I had less... I had less... Uh, I didn't read a lot of the Ultimate X-Men, but I did read Fantastic Four and the Ultimates and, and, and Spider-Man. And there was a few other, There was a few others in there as well. Uh, a few others. Oh, Ultimate Iron Man. There was a, an Ultimate Iron Man, which was really interesting too, mm-hmm. uh, which spun off from the from the Ultimates. Um, so, yeah. Cool. Some good stuff. Worth worth going back and re-exploring. And, yeah. I mean, they had top-tier creators in them all. I'm pretty sure they're getting ready to release an omnibus or an updated hardcover at the very least of the Ultimates. So it's just that's why I was asking because I'm I'm curious to to read a bit more in this universe. But I just you never hear a lot of people talking about the Ultimate line except you, Ultimate uh, Spider-Man. You know? Have you not read the Ultimates? No, no, never have. Oh well, that's something. You I think it's Mark Miller and Brian Hitch. I think might be. Yes, I think you're. I think you're right. I think you're right. Yeah, there's some great stuff in the Ultimates. It's uh, it's more violent. The Hulk is uh, is a, a much more violent. Uh, reimagining as well you know but it, yeah it's really it's really interesting stuff it's really interesting stuff i i think you'll enjoy it well i think after reading immortal hulk it would need to be a very violent hulk to live up to expectations these days <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah no highly highly recommend ultimate spider-man as i say it's it's always been a gap in my reading always been something i wanted to read and i was just really glad to see that the omnibuses were back in print and 
we do have one or two left of the of the main omnibus and then as i say later in the year we have ultimate spider-man volume 2 it may even be on our board right now and it may even come with the subtitle of hook it to our veins so you can tell i'm very much looking forward to volume two mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. yeah um, yeah so yeah so that brings an end to our reviews then for the 5th of january so uh, that is uh, another one in the bag. We are going to continue throughout uh, this month of of catching up and hopefully we'll not be too far behind, but uh, our reading gets caught up first and then the podcast come after that. So uh, mm-hmm. if you if you enjoyed this as always, you know where the store is, get in touch. If there's anything that stands out to you or anything that you might have missed, just let us know. We'll always do our best to source these things for you. So uh, as ever, my thanks to Keith. Uh, always good to chat and especially on a double dip Marvel pick of the week. Hey! <laughs> doesn't happen often but when it does it's totally worth the wait so yeah cheers as always hope you guys enjoyed this and uh, we'll see you back soon for another podcast uh, whether it's reviews previews or maybe we might even sh- uh, slip in a little book club sometime soon so thanks for listening guys and see you soon <laughs>